0: Uh, I, so I thought I could do like a chapter and a half, and that's not going to happen. Uh, part of it is because of our we're not as familiar with the Judges as we are with other parts of the Bible. Um, and as such, it, there are so many names, so many places. And the way this first chapter is written, it is so quick. It is a drive-by because, because the writer is trying to set up the body of the book. And there's just so much to get caught up. Some of it is a repeat from Joshua because it wants you to see the connection that this is part of the conquest narrative. Um, and so uh, chapter one is a bit chaotic, so much so the scholars struggle with it. And as a result, I, I, I'm struggling with it. Um, but uh, I, I do think um, it, is, it is worth our, our investment. I will say that the main application, uh, uh, we may not get, it, get to it this week. So I always try to point out, why did God give us this text? What are we going to do with it? Um, and we may not get there until next week. Uh, in fact, what I'm hoping to do is to set you up. That, that, um, that, you, that today, hopefully, you think this. And at the end, I want to show you, actually, you were wrong to think that. Uh, which is a fun way of, of teaching. So, um, uh, so everything looks good so far. But if you know judges, you know it ain't good. So... Um, so, Judges, let's start in verse 1, and uh, we'll just figure out where we're going from there. Verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon and his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and Perizzites. Don't get lost. Bezek is a city. Adonai is the Lord of Bezek. So that's why you have the repetition. So the Lord of Bezek uh, got caught in Bezek. He lost in the town. So uh, do with that whatever whatever you want. Um, uh, Verse 5, Yeah, they found Adonai Bezik and fought against him, defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezik, verse 6, fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezik said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. How about that for a start? Now, I shared with you last week, uh, whenever I was a teenager, most teenage boys, if they fall in love with the Bible, it's because of Song of Solomon. You know why. Me, on the other hand, it was Book of Judges. I loved the war. I loved the violence. I loved all that. And, and you know, it was cool whenever you're watching ninjas fight in a movie. That was cool. But this is in the Bible, right? So, so it's okay for me to like it. That was my rationalization as a teenager. And right from the offset. Uh, you, you get this story. In fact, I told you my youth pastor mentioned the story of uh, Yael nailing the dude, dude to the ground. And, and I thought that was cool. And he, and he told me what book it was in. I said, okay, I'm going to start in chapter one, verse one, and I'm going to find it. And sure enough, seven verses into it, I'm like, this ain't that cool, but this is pretty cool, right? Again, as a teenage boy, okay, as a teenage boy, when you're young and dumb. And uh, so, so right from the get go, we see that th- this is a violent book. And this is a, going to be a difficult book for us for us, us us to to get through. Well, a couple of things to, to point out here um, is I have I have up here uh, that this is the continued conquest of Joshua, but what we also have going on here simultaneously is a quiet compromise. So I've already ruined the ending for you. So so when you read it, the first thing you notice is all we're discovering is that, Though Joshua is dead, the Israelites are finishing the conquest of Moses and Joshua. And, and that's a good thing, right? That they, they are taking over the land. They're going to take possession of it. But what we're looking for is how do these people with all the success, Jericho and everything else, here you get the Perizzites and everyone else, how do, how do we go from there to everyone was right in their own eyes? And actually we're told here in chapter 1, but it's subtle. That's why the Bible is so well written. It's it's hard to see it at first, but once you see it, I I think you'll start to see some real application there. Uh, Just just for your interest here, uh, Judges starts the same way that Joshua does. Uh, So, oh, did I not have it up there? Oh, man. So Joshua 1 um, uh, starts with, uh, oh, that comes later. So let me skip here. So Joshua 1 starts the same way that Judges 1-1 does. So after the death of Moses in Joshua, after the death of Joshua in the book of Judges, clearly we are meant to see symmetry here. Uh, in fact, Joshua or Judges rather, opens with the death of Joshua, verse one, and it ends with the coming of the monarchy. Judges is the, the great bridge. If you want to see it, uh, there there you go. Um, in those days there was no king. Everyone does. I think this is the very last verse of of the book. Uh, so would so you have these bookends? You have, you have the death of one and of, of one leader, the hope of a future leader. Um, in fact, in this chapter we're introduced to two people who, who are the last remaining survivors of Egypt. Joshua's dead, uh, so he doesn't do anything. The other is Caleb. We'll meet him in a minute, hopefully. Uh, if not, next week we will. Uh, and he plays an important role uh, for the Judites. And so these are the last two guys. And now remember, remember their story is they're with the rest of that generation, and they were numbered among spies, and they come across the Anakim. Remember that, that name, the Anakim. And they look, and everyone else says they are giants like the Nephilim. We can't beat them. And Caleb and Joshua say, of course we can. And as a result, God blesses them with long life that they see the promised land. They actually take possession of it. And so we meet both of them in this chapter. Um, uh, now, the problem with, with Judges is that when Joshua dies, the conquest is not complete. So you get this in Joshua 13.1. Joshua was owed events and years. Lord said, you are owed events and years. Thank you very much. In case you didn't hear the first time. There remains yet very much land to possess. Remember, these are, these are like nomadic tribes coming from Egypt. Now they've arrived at the promised land. Yeah, they've beaten Jericho and they've, they've beaten some of these other places. But there's still much land to, to, to take. So in on the one hand, they, they did um, own the land, but they still didn't possess the land. And so what's happening is they can come in, they can conquer a piece of land, and they say, okay, we declare this in the name of Yahweh. But people live there. And they don't want to move. And so, so there's, there's this issue of owning and possessing. And, 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 and in, um, uh, in Judges, there are two narratives that keep popping up. One is the story of Noah. You remember what happens in the days of Noah. There are giants in the land. God cleanses the land of giants so that the people of God can take possession. And then the other story is Adam. In the story of Adam, God puts man in a... A blessed garden that he then corrupts. So here what we're looking for in the conquest is the Noah part. Instead of water, God uses the people of God to cleanse the land to create a new garden of Eden. You remember what Noah did? Noah gets off the ark. And what does he do? He makes the sacrifices. Yes. He then plants a garden, a vineyard. And that's what you're getting here. So, so that's going to help us understand why they're pushing people out, why they're going to war. They're still wanting to take possession of the land so that they, like Adam and Eve, can enjoy the land that God has given them. Um, so with that said, uh, verse 1 all the way down to verse 20 is the story of, of the victories of Judah. Uh, the victories of Judah. Now, verse 1, the death of an influential political leader, that can create quite a crisis in any nation. Uh, when the king dies or the boss dies, uh, that, that, that can create some problems. Now, when, when Moses died, he had already appointed his successor. If you like history, uh, a good example of this is Alexander the Great. Uh, the story goes, uh, you know, they thought he was dying. They said, okay, you haven't appointed an heir because uh, you don't have any kids. Who's going to be in control? And the, the story goes, he says, whoever wins, something like that. And that's pretty much what you got, except no one won, just everyone died. Um, and and that's sort of what situation Joshua hasn't announced who who's the next guy. And so now that they've taken possession of the land, and they still you know got to do more, is is now it is it is up to the tribes. Judah has to clear out their allotments. Benjamin has to clear out their allotments. Simeon and or not Levi because they don't have allotment, but Issachar, all of them, and so. So we're looking at Judah here in chapter 1. But the other judges represent other tribes, and they're doing that. Eventually, the Philistines and the Perizzites and all these people will come back, and a judge will rise and have to push them out. And so so think of Israel not as a united kingdom, but as a group of semi-united tribes. And so they all are under the banner of Yahweh. It's a theocracy. But they have no king. What they have are tribes. So, so think of the United States. If we didn't have a federal government, we're all Americans, but really, I'm a Kentuckian. Yeah, Lane. Uh, I'm ask, uh, my Yeah, yeah, that, that, that yeah. Because I've always thought European Union is trying to just do the United States. Um, And, and of course, that creates problems with um, when the European Union oversteps its bounds and England says, we don't want that. And that's going to be the problem with Saul, David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. That's then, so instead of being 12 tribes uh, who have a loose connection under Yahweh, they become one nation made up of 12 tribes, and then they become two nations. Uh, Locked the United States and (laughs) European Union at this point. Um, So... um, um, So in verse 2, they inquire of the Lord. This is all good, right? Uh, Joshua's dead, and they ask God, now what do we do? Now, we're not told how they do this. There are priests, the Levites, all that, but we're not told any of this sort of stuff. So so now what do we do? That's the question when leadership passes, what's next? And God says to Judah, I want you to get rid of the Canaanites in your allotments. And so what we're reading is that fulfillment. And the first thing, um, now the reason he chose Judah is probably because of the royal line. Remember, I think Judges is a little bit of propaganda for the line of David. And so you start with Judah, and everything seems to be going well for them until we get to the very end. And then it ends with the Benjaminites causing civil war. Well, who's the, what tribe is the first king of Israel? A Benjaminite. What tribe is the, the great king? Judahite, right? So you do kind of wonder, there's some of that going on. Um, but the first decision Judah, the tribe of Judah, makes is they, they, they recruit the Simeonites, the tribe of Simeon, to help them clear the land. Now, uh, there, there's a number of reasons for this. One of them is that the allotment of Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, uh, is, is, um, is within. The allotment of Judah. I don't understand that, but that's what everyone's telling me. So if you want wanting a verse to prove that, uh, Joshua 19, the second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to the clans, their inheritance, in the midst of Judah. So it does kind of make sense practically. Since some of the land we've got to clear out is your land too. So I'll help you, you help me. That seems to be the strategy here. By their powers combined, uh, they are uh, uh, going to to fight off Judah. The Canaanites. Um, so in verse 4, uh, the two tribes defeat both the Canaanites and the Perizzites, killing 10,000 men uh, at Bezek. Now, Canaanites, just, just for clarity, Canaanites is a generic term. It's like saying American. Perizzites is a specific group of Canaanites, like saying Kentuckian. So, so the Canaanites are also a loose group, uh, people group, that are in the land of Canaan, they are all Canaanites, so you get the Jebusites, you get the you you get the Parasites, you, you get all of these ites, and so there's a group of Parasites. This is where this battle starts, and they go to a city called Bezek, and notice in verse four that they go up to war, and verse nine they go down to war. So some symmetry there. That's interesting, um, and. Uh, um, Oh, if you're looking for other tribes, I forgot I put this up here. Uh, other tribes of the Canaanites include the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Um, so do with that information whatever you want. Now, in verse 5 to 7, they defeat Adonai Bezek. Adonai is the, Lord for, is the word for Lord. So we use that word to talk of God. That God is the Lord, Adonai. And that's the word there. It's Adonai Bezek, which means the Lord of the city of Bezek which means he is a type of governor, mayor, king, tribal chief, something like that. And so when they capture him, that is in essence the end of the battle because people are fighting for him, not just their city, they're fighting for him. And if he's gone, they, you know, there's, there's, no, there's a leadership vacuum there. This is typical of, 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 of the ancient world. Um, that name Adonai Bezek, it could be an actual name. It's probably a title like Caesar or Pharaoh uh, or president, something like that. Um, now, um, they capture him, and as we read, they mutilate him by removing his thumbs and big toes. Now, we have to pause there because this is not what we're used to talking about in church. You will find in Judges and other parts of the Old Testament, mutilations are more common than we would like to admit. This is barbarism. So, can you think of a story of mutilation in the book of Judges? I'll give you a hint. It's the most popular story in Judges. Samson. You remember that when they capture Samson, they pluck out his eyes. Uh, you can go to uh, uh, 1 Samuel 11. This is uh, King Nahash. Remember, Nahash means serpent. So, here you have, uh, he's an Ammonite, it's a Canaanite. Um, uh, why are the Ammonites there? Weren't they supposed to get rid of them in the days of Joshua and the Judges? Right. So, so you, you see what's going on here. Uh, I'm just going to tell you everything that's wrong with the book of Judges. Well, Nahash means serpent. And so Saul slay, is supposed to slay the serpent. Genesis 3.15. David will slay the son of Nahash, the seed of the serpents. That is Genesis 3.15. This is the same David who, ta- who slays the giant. And when he falls down, his, his body's made of scales. That's the language used, a snakely language. And he falls down and he eats the dust of the earth, Genesis three fifteen sixteen. That's free. Anyways, so, but here you see it's more mutilation. One more, uh, 2 Kings 25. Um, this is, of course, Zedekiah has to witness. Zedekiah is the, the last king of, of Judah when the Babylonians come. And, and he has to watch the last thing he sees. Is the slaughter of his sons, and then they gouge out his eyes. I mean, this is barbarism. Look, can we just pause here? The reason this is a weird world to us is because Christianity has triumphed in the West. So I know we're not going to get everything done now. Um, so um, um, as we become more post-Christian, we are slowly realizing what we're losing from Christianity. So, uh, if you're ever bored, read anything about the Caesars, read anything about the Greek kings, uh, read anything about the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, read anyone pre-Christianity. And what you will find is that this stuff is common. No one thought anything of it. Yeah, Don? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they are a post-Christian world. Northern Africa was Christianized. Then, then the uh, uh, Muslims come in, uh, and it takes us back to this. So this is where you have the chopping off of the hands and, and everything else, where you, you bring someone out into an arena so that everyone can watch their slaughter uh, and, and, and to, to, to add to the torture and pain of those who are suffering. Um, yeah, so when you see, wherever you see where Christianity is not the predominant worldview, whether everyone believes in it or not, but just the predominant presumption you're going to see this sort of stuff everywhere. Yeah? Could, could it be argued that the reason we're seeing an increase of barbarism in our Western world, writing, um, killing children, I mean, is, that, is that arguable, do you think, because of the, the demise of Christianity in the West? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Christianity has always advocated the weak. You get rid of Christianity and watch what happens to the weak. It becomes very Nietzschean um, in that way. So... Uh, um, the historian, Holland, what's his first name? Tom Holland. I was going to say John. Tom Holland. Uh, he, he's the sort of guy um, where he's a Roman historian. And it hit him one day. I'm reading about Caesar slotting mil- millions of people for the fun of it. And I'm not exaggerating. Uh, Julius Caesar, he goes in, he just kills a bunch of people after, in, in the battle. And then after battle, he's like, well, I don't like you all. I'll, kill, I'll just wipe everybody out. I'm going to order my soldiers one by one just to kill everybody. And he's sitting there. He goes, why am I appalled at this? Why am I appalled if they weren't appalled by this? It's not like anyone was sitting in the Roman Senate thinking, that Julius Caesar, boy, he's awfully bloody. No, they're all like, Rome, yeah, Rome. Now, why are we appalled by that? And he discovered, oh, dude, I'm not a Christian, and I'm kind of acting like a Christian here. I have no theological basis to be appalled by the slaughter of innocent people. And then he looked at the West, human rights and everything else. Uh, so the reason that we struggle to read this is because of the influence of Christianity. Now, we're going to come back to this scene um, because this is the first hint we see that things are not all right. Uh, but, but we'll come back to it. Now, mutilation at this time was a way of humiliating someone. You're permanently damaging them. And in fact, what you see that Adonai Bezek says uh, in verse 7, he did this to, to his enemies. He removed their thumbs and big toes so that he can laugh at them, mock them, humiliate them. So you have mutilation followed by humiliation. So he would have all these kings that he defeated and he would mutilate them and then, and then he would feed them scraps off his table that they had to crawl on and they had to pick up because they didn't have thumbs. And then that was his way of, of adding to the, to the joy of his victories. And so his view of things is, well, I did it to them. It's going to do it to me. And this is common at this time. Uh, now, on the surface, this looks like the uh, lex talionis. Uh, so if you're wanting some verses here, we're going to come back to this again, maybe next week. Uh, if anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Uh, Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19 repeats the same thing. You should not show pity, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that Adonai Bezek supposedly did this to 70 kings. That number 70 is important, isn't it? Because in Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew language, there are two numbers that represent perfection, 7 and 10. Now, I'm a public school child from Owen County, and my math tells me 7 times 10 equals 70. That is also the number, I believe is true, of the nations in Genesis 10 and 11. Do you remember when you get the table of nations? I believe if you count those up, there's 70 of them, something like that. We, we talked about it way back when. How many does Jesus send out in the Gospels, two by two? He sends 70 of them out. Now, your, your manuscripts may say 72. I think it's 70. It's the better reading. So this number is interesting, I think. That that it was this is it was at least the way he wants to read it is, I reach my maximal number before Elohim. Your Bible says God. It's probably the gods. He's a pagan Canaanite. The gods judged me, um, and now it's my turn to have my thumbs cut off, have my big toes cut off, and to be humiliated. Uh, this is a very barbaric world. It also shows us what an evil world that the Canaanites lived in that the Jews are coming in and, and they're seeing this. They're just torturing each other. They're just killing each other. They're all Canaanites, but they're at war with each other. It's all about land and power and possession. And so remember, we are to see this as the story of Noah. The land has to be cleansed of this stuff lest the people of Israel become uh, infected with it. And again, we'll, we'll come back to, to see all of that. Um, so notice verse 8, which is where, where we left off. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem. Now, at the end of verse 7, they brought Adonai Bezek to Jerusalem. We don't know why. We don't know how he died. He died in Jerusalem. Um, and now, Jerusalem is one of the oldest cities in the world ever. We can trace it back really, really early. We first meet Jerusalem with the story of Abraham, uh, story of Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem. So, uh, so he's the king of peace, Shalom, Salem. Uh, here, here we see it again. So uh, the men with Adonai, apparently with them, they fight against Jerusalem and they capture it, strike it with the edge of the sword and set it on fire. Now, again, I, I, I think the writer of Judges is anticipating David or is around the time of David. So I wonder if some of this is going on here. And you'll notice we're not really given anything else. From, the, from antiquity, Jerusalem was a strategic city. It still is. Obviously, it's in the news all the time. But here, they don't take possession of the city. They just burn it to the ground. They just destroy it. Now, what's interesting is... I don't think Jerusalem's mentioned again in Judges. I could be wrong on that. You could do a quick study of it. But eventually, the Jebusites move in. Another Canaanite group. And when David becomes king of united Israel... One of the first things he does is he takes possession of Jerusalem and declares it his new capital. Who's there? The Jebusites. Now, we're not given any details about, did God tell them to take possession of it? Did God say, just burn it? We're just not given that information. Again, I think the writer is just putting a bug in our ear. If you keep reading the story of Israel, we're going to come back to this city. You remember with Abraham? Now we're going to come back with it with David. But right now, it's burned to the ground. And at some point between here and David, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, come in and they, and they occupy it. And David uh, allows the Jebusites to, to live among the Israelites. So, Did he part of it the I think so. Yeah, yeah. He didn't, I don't, he didn't just roll in there with an army. I mean, he threatened them, but um, it wasn't, I don't think it was a big bloody battle. Um, but he finally takes possession of it. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. So whenever you read about, you know, Israel versus Palestine, all this sort of stuff, they say, well, this is Palestinian land. And they say, well, Israel's had it since the day of David. Yeah. Um, has anyone asked the Jebusites what their thoughts are on the city of Jerusalem? I mean, it was their city first. <laughs> right? Any Canaanites still around? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but anyways, um, okay, real quickly, verse 9 to 15 Um so now, now so, so they've, they've gone to Adonai Bezek. They've gone to Jerusalem. Now here they go, verse 9. Afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the, the Negev. Your translation may say Negev. The B and V is funny in Hebrew. And in the lowland, And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shisha, Ahiman, and Talmai. All these names, cities, and people will be on your quiz at the end. Uh, if you do not pass... You will have to go back, rewatch the video, and take it all over again. Um, We'll pause there. So, so they've they've gone in one direction. Now they're going another direction. Eventually they'll go another direction. So, so so they're going to occupy all of this this area. Um, They begin attacking the Gev in the hill country, and then they go to the lowland. In verse nine, we're not given any other details. They attack it. They get it done. Just like in verse eight, they attack it. They get it done. In verse 10, they take on Hebron. Now, Hebron's is significant. Hebron is the first capital of David. Before Jerusalem is Hebron. Hebron goes all the way back in the days of Abraham. These are important cities for the Israelites. Um, Kiriath Arba, in case you want to know, means city of four. Kiriath means city. Uh, there's a lot of debate as to what that name means. Shisha, Ahimon, and Talma were just leaders of the Anakim. Um, now, you notice there, verse 10... Um, is it not mentioned um, should say the anakim somewhere oh no where are the anakim in chapter one is it not there curious where am i getting the anakim well the anakim are here somewhere Say it again. I bet what I've done is the inhabitants of the Negev, this area, were the Anakim. I bet I'm going back to Numbers and Joshua connecting here. Now, why is that important? Let's just assume these are an Anakim. They're in here somewhere. Um, um, boy, that's going to bother me. Um, let's assume that they are the Anakim. Oh, yeah, here it is. In the days of Joshua... Hebron was ruled by the Anakim, Anak, um, and his three sons. So here's here's a few verses to prove that I'm not making this up. Joshua 14, the name of Hebron firmly was Kiriath Arba. Same thing here in Judges 1. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Same thing in Joshua 15, according to the commandments of the Lord, Joshua, Caleb, so on and so forth. Um, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, Arba was the father of Anak. So you have Arba, whose son is Anak, from Anak are the Anakim, the people of Anak, okay? Now, why is that so important? Um, These are the people that put the Israelites to fear because of their great size. So remember the stories again, Noah and Adam. So I'm just going to go with a natural reading of Genesis 6. You can go... Years ago, we looked at Genesis 6 in some detail. And if you have any questions, please ask Danny. Um, I take that in the days of Noah, the Nephilim were giants. Do whatever you want with that information. And if you study the Bible, giants in the Old Testament, giants show up three times. We did this in in a study of David. Noah, the conquest, and David. And all three have the similar purpose, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so he. So there's two ways to read that, with with similar conclusions. One is the Nephilim are the giants, and to get there, you really have to borrow from similar stories in the ancient Near Eastern world. The uh, uh, Dr. Gentry's argument, which I did not have Dr. Gentry because uh, he was too smart for me, and and I needed good grades. And um, um, he's he's the sort. I'm not making this. Uh, I actually uh, went to chapel right next to him. He came and sat next to me, and he had his Greek Bible, his Hebrew Bible, ready to go. No English. You know, you know, one of those weirdos. That's Dr. Gentry. Brilliant guy. Brilliant guy. Uh, one of the smartest Old Testament guys you'll meet. Yeah, so that's the reading. Are, are So the sons of God, if they are divine beings mixing with humans, do they create the Nephilim or, or, or is the men of renown a different category? Which would mean Nephilim, in, in Dr. Gentry's reading, aren't necessarily giants, but they are giant figures in the sense of, of powerful leaders, military conquerors and kings and stuff. And in that sense, there's Nephilim before the flood, there's Nephilim after. So um, I have the verse here, uh, Numbers 13, there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. Now, the question is, if, if God wiped out all the Nephilim at the flood, what are they doing here? I don't have an answer to that question. I'm just going to roll with what the text says. Yes, Don. I think that, my of course, it came through either Hams or one of the wives. Okay, possibly. I will... I will Right. Um, did you all hear that, ladies? Noah was perfect, not the women. That was Don Lewis. You can PO box. You know. Um, I will say this: that in, in the in the story of the Bible, what I, to go back to what we've what we've made, the point we've made is that we are to see Canaan as a land in need of cleansing, and so so the writers return to the theme of the Nephilim. So here you have Judah with Simeon with them. They come into Hebron, and that's where the Anakim were. And as Caleb had said, uh, God will deliver them. Let me give you just one more. Amin formerly lived there, people, great, and many, tall like the Anakim. Um, uh, now, they were numbered among the Rephaim. You talk about a, a rabbit trail, um, but we, we, we won't do much about the Rephaim. Um, We we have looked at that. Joshua 11, Joshua came at that time, cut off the Anakim from the hill country from Hebron, Debir, and Nab. Now notice this. um, There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Now, where is Goliath from? Right here. Three parts in the Old Testament. You get giants. You get story of Noah, the story of Joshua and the conquest and Judges, and then you get the story of David. When David, after he is anointed king, before he's crowned king, he's anointed king, the first thing he does is a descendant from Gath, a giant, and he slays them. And who is it that's doing this in Judges 1? Sons of Judah. So... so uh, this is why this is important. Now, it's weird stuff. I get it. I get it. it we, we struggle with this in, 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 in 21st century. Uh, but this, this would have made sense uh, back then. Now, I do want you to remind you, these cities are going to pop up again in chapter 1. Because they're actually going to go over there. And they're going to fight them. Real quick, verses 11 to 15, we'll call it a night. And I know you're swimming. Your, your head is swimming. We are going somewhere with this, uh, hopefully. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir is from the Kiriath Sefer, so city of Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. Othniel, that's going to be one of the judges later, I think chapter three or four, chapter three, I believe. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, so this would be a nephew. There's some debate over that, but we'll go with it. Captured it. He gave... Heam Aksa, his daughter for a wife when she came to him she urged him to ask her father for a field and she dismounted from her donkey and caleb said to her what do you want she said to him give me a blessing since you have set me in the land of the negev give me also springs of water and caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs God. so what do we have here the, 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 these are the, the the now they're taken on beer curious means city of books it's probably like a college town the center of canaanite learning so this is a significant place for them to, to go after. Um, and Caleb, who is the last survivor of Egypt, says, whoever takes this city, I'll give you my daughter. Now, pause there. Stop reading the Bible as 21st century Americans. We struggle with this. Uh, because how would you feel if, if I went up to the TFCA basketball team and said, hey, if you, you guys... Score thirty points and win this game here in the playoffs. You're gonna have my daughter's hand in marriage when she hits twenty-two. You would. You'd call me out, right? We don't do this, okay? We we don't do this sort of stuff. Yeah, Don. Yes, but not us. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't do this, okay? And we could talk about the good, bad, the ugly, all that sort of stuff. But let me just say, this was common. And I want you to notice that the daughter is on board with this. She's proactive in this. Why? Because in in this sort of world where violence rules and reigns, you want to be married to the strongest of them all. So she's on board with this. What does Caleb want for his daughter's? Yeah, because that's what his father-in-law wanted for his wife. (laughs) You know, uh, this is a world we don't understand. Why? Because Christianity has triumphed. We have general peace. You didn't have that. Ladies, you can leave here right now. Go to Kroger. Go across town. Go to Lexington. Go to Louisville. And there's a good chance your husband is not going to worry too much about you returning. Now, I... I, I, when my wife does that, I check in with her. You doing okay? I tell her, when you leave this store, just let me know you're leaving. I do all that sort of stuff. But we don't worry about this like you would have then. Women would have traveled in groups like the woman and the whale uh, did in, the most women would have, to, to go get water. and Or they would have traveled with with the group of men. This is the world. We, we, we don't understand this world. But this sort of arrangement makes complete sense. This is a strategic city that, that Caleb wants. And it's Othniel who takes it. Um, And thus he wins uh, uh, her hand in marriage. He will show up again in Judges 3, 7 to 11, Caleb's nephew. Um, And now what's interesting, verse 14 to 15, is that she comes to her uh, engaged groom. And she says, I want you to go to my father. You didn't have to ask him for my hand in marriage. He gave it to you. I mean, took a lot of fighting and sweat. But what I want you to do is go to my father and say, I want this land over here. Now notice in the very next verse it is the daughter who asks her father. I think that's an important detail. Because what we're going to see in in Judges is how often women have to take the lead. The story that comes to mind immediately is Deborah. It is Barak who's a bit on the cowardly side and it's Deborah who says we're going to win this battle. And it is Yael who is a Kenite, we'll come to the Kenites next week uh, who ends up ending the battle by nailing a dude's head to the ground. Um, and there's other examples of this later. And this is the first time we, we see a woman really take charge. In fact, the, the language is she she uh, dismounted from her donkey, the, or uh, the language is that she hurried on a donkey. Remember, donkeys were, were royal creatures then. Uh, they're not like Shrek's friend now, the way we view donkeys. Um, so she's in a hurry to get to her father. And, and, and this should have been Othniel's job. It's interesting, isn't it? He's brave enough to fight the Canaanites. He's not brave enough to talk to Caleb. Just a little detail, something to put there in our mind. Such a weird detail. But it, it does show up later. And notice what she wants. Give me a blessing. Now, this is, sounds like the story of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to his, his sons. Give me a blessing. But it's a blessing from a father to his daughter, not a father to his son. Or even father to his son-in-law. Did he have sons? I don't know. But he had a daughter. Give me a blessing, she says. You can already see that now they're in Canaan, and and there's all these Canaanites around. Things seem off. It's subtle, but things seem off. Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land and the Gev. So I've already got it. But really, it's all yours, because you're, you're Caleb, Judah, all that sort of stuff. She says, what I want in particular is to give me also springs of water. And what did he give her? The best. She got both the upper springs and lower springs. Why is that so important? Because when one dried up, she had access to the other. Which is the climate of the Middle East at this time. What does that sound like to you? Can you think of another place in the Bible where? There are multiple sources of water by which you dwell. It's the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2 goes in great details and names the rivers for us, tigers and Euphrates being two of them. So what is she asking for? She's asking in the land of the Nephilim, now that they're cleared out, at least so far, we'll, we'll, we'll finish Judah next week, now that they've been cleared out of this part, I don't want you to settle with Noah. I want to go back to the days of Adam. Give me a garden near the springs where we can dwell with the Lord. Now, if only it ended there, right? That's the problem with judges. Is, is we can see what is available to the Israelites if they just obey the Lord. And we can say the same thing about America. We can say the same thing about any nation. We can say the same thing about the church. We can see what is available to us, peace and and, and, and everything else, a, a promised land, if you will. The problem is we make these compromises along the way that leads us down a dark and dangerous path that robs us of what otherwise would have been available to us. Because Othniel, in two chapters, is going to have to deliver Judah from the Canaanites again. So this promised land has now become corrupt and they got to go fight and deliver it again. If they had just done it the first time, that's actually how the story of Judah ends in chapter, chapter 1, verse 20. Okay, let's pause there. Anyone completely lost? All of us? All of us? So if you, if you don't remember anything else, remember Adam and Noah. Those themes, I think, are going to show up over and over again. Uh, let me mention just just one last thing. Um, uh, a little, little over a year ago, uh, our 60th anniversary. Um, I wrote the uh, history of the church. I am completely done with it. If you want the second one, I've got a few copies up here, um, or you can go online and purchase it yourself. I make zero dollars. If you want, if you don't want it, don't get it. If you want it, go ahead and get it. I've got a few up here. Um, so that job is done, forever and ever. So. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Yes, it is, it is a stimulating reading. So, um, so if you want to hear what all Irma Jean did over these years, and Jerry Zuki's did, John Irwin's in there, um, uh, Miss Betty. So, um, it's there. Don, you're in there a little bit, with your bus ministry and all that. So, and some of the stuff you built for the. Well, good. There you go. There you go. Uh, yeah. So. And uh, I uh, doggy eared for you a special part. So you're going to have to read that tonight. Yeah. There you go. So you'll never question him again, will you?